Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. If you have your Bibles, um, please open it to Matthew chapter 11. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning is uh, Matthew 11, verses 16 to 24. And the title of this morning's message is Jesus, Sovereign Judge. Jesus, Sovereign Judge. There's a couple reasons why I wanted to speak on this passage this morning. The first reason being, I just think that it's good for us as a church and as believers in Christ to talk as much about the person of Jesus Christ as possible. I think it makes sense for all of us that he is the vine, we are the branches, he is the head, we are the body, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him. And so it's good for us as a church just to talk about Jesus. I was thinking about giving this opportunity to speak, what can I talk about, what issues can I address, and really it was on my heart just, Dan, I just, I just need to talk about Jesus. I just need to preach Jesus. I just need to lift up Jesus and talk about him as much as possible. And as believers, that really is our heart's desire, is just to hear about Jesus, just to know about Jesus, just to see his life, his ministry, his words, and just to worship him and to love him more. So first reason I wanted to go to this passage is because I think it's just good for us as a church to talk about Jesus. The second reason is that I think I have a burden on my heart that we see Jesus Christ both as a tender shepherd and as a sovereign judge. It really is a burden on my heart that we see Jesus Christ as both a tender shepherd and a sovereign judge. The truth is that if we see Jesus as a tender shepherd but not as a sovereign judge, we will love him but we will not fear him. If we see him as a sovereign judge but not as a tender shepherd, we will fear him but we will not love him. The truth is we need to have in our hearts a balanced and full and complete understanding of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that incorporates both the fact that he is a tender shepherd. He is loving, kind, merciful, gentle, patient, long-suffering. And he is also a sovereign judge. He is filled with holy anger toward those who reject him. He is righteous in his judgment. He is absolutely holy and pure. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil, and he will judge those sinners who have rebelled against him. Essential for all of us as believers is to have a true and a full and an accurate view of Jesus Christ, which both incorporates the fact that he is a tender shepherd and he is a sovereign judge. Now, what is beautiful about Matthew chapter 11 is that it presents both facets of our Lord Jesus Christ, both features and both characteristics of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first half of Matthew 11, verses 1 to 15, we see a beautiful presentation of Jesus Christ as a tender shepherd. We see him as he ministers to weak believers, to doubting believers. We see his encouraging heart, his heart to reach out to believers who are struggling, who are downcast, who are discouraged, who are having a tough time in their faith and in their life, and to minister to them, to build them up, to restore them. Matthew 12 says that a bruised reed he will not break off, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And those are both pictures of weak believers. And what that verse tells us about Jesus Christ is that he is a tender shepherd, When he comes across believers who have been bruised and beaten and battered up with life, his heart is not to break them off and to throw them away, but his heart is to minister to them and to bind them up so that they become whole again. When he comes across believers who are like those smoldering wicks just about to go out, his heart is not to blow them out. His heart is to fan them into a raging fire once again. He is a tender shepherd. In the first half of Matthew 11 we see, of all people, John the Baptist struggling with his faith. The great man, the godly preacher, the herald of the Messiah, John the Baptist, comes to Jesus in verse, verses 2 to 6 and says, Jesus, are you the expected one? Are you the coming one? Essentially saying, are you the Messiah, Jesus? And we know that John knew that he was the Messiah, but He was struggling with his faith. Even the strongest man of God, even the strongest preacher of God can struggle with their faith. And John being in difficult and dark circumstances here actually doubts 
and struggles with doubt to the point where he comes to Jesus and asks, are you the Messiah? And Jesus ministers to him and encourages him and builds him up. And there we see a beautiful portrait of Jesus as a tender shepherd. In our passage this morning, we're going to transition from, to verses 16 to 24, and we're going to see a portrait of Jesus as a sovereign judge. Jesus is not only a tender shepherd, but he is a sovereign judge. He is not only a lamb, he is a lion. He is not only kind and merciful and patient and long-suffering, he is also filled with holy anger and justice and wrath and righteous, holy indignation toward a world that is in rebellion against Him. And once again, I say we have to have both pictures and portraits of Christ in our hearts and in our minds if we are to love, serve, and fear Jesus Christ. In the first half of Matthew 11, we see Jesus, how He relates toward doubting believers, toward believers who are struggling, toward believers who are downcast, who are discouraged. And we see that Jesus' heart toward believers who are struggling, who are weak, is he wants to lift them up. He wants to build them up. He wants to reach out in love. He wants to encourage. He is gentle and kind and merciful and patient. And he doesn't give up on those believers. As much as they would doubt him, as much as they would struggle, even to the point if they would struggle with that very basic question, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you really becoming one? His heart is to reach out in love. His heart is to be patient and to restore that believer. But what we're going to see in verse 16 as we transition. The second half of Matthew 11 deals with how does Jesus deal with unbelieving rejection? uh, First half of Matthew 11 deals with believers who are doubting. The second half of Matthew 11 deals with unbelievers who just reject Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between the two. I hope you agree. Believers who are doubting are believers who struggle with their faith. Believers who, they, they have faith in Christ, but they're, they're struggling, they're downcast, they're discouraged. They're going through a dark season in life, and so their fiery flame has gone down to a smoldering wick and Christ wants to minister to those people. What we're dealing with in this passage is unbelieving, rejecting people who have heard the news about Jesus Christ, who know the truth of who he is and don't want any part of it. They're not struggling to believe. They're not struggling with their faith. They're not trying to move toward Christ. They know the news about Jesus Christ, but they have rejected him. They don't want any part of him. We're dealing with in this passage an entirely different issue. We have to get that distinct in our minds. Unbelieving rejection. People who know the truth about Jesus Christ, but who have rejected him. How does Jesus relate toward them? And we see a stark contrast in this passage. No longer do we see Jesus as a tender, merciful, patient, loving, kind shepherd who wants to bind up wounds and restore weak hearts. Instead, we see a portrait of Jesus as a holy, wrathful, sovereign, righteous. He is a lion who will judge wicked sinners and judge those who have rejected him. Now, just to set the context for our passage, the Gospel of Matthew can be divided up into two sections. The first section is the presentation of the Messiah in chapters 1 to 10. The second section is the rejection of the Messiah in chapters 11 to 28. In chapters 1 to 10, we see Jesus preaching, we see Jesus teaching, we see Jesus healing, we see him performing miracles, we see the multitude surrounding him and all of them being healed. We see Jesus fulfilling Old Testament scripture and Old Testament prophecy, and we see this glorious truth that this Messiah that has been promised to Israel in the Old Testament scriptures, that he has come in human flesh, and he has fulfilled the scriptures, and he has proved beyond the shadow of the doubt that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. By the time you get to the end of Matthew 10, there should be no excuse 
for anyone, especially the nation of Israel at this time, to conclude anything else than that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Holy One. He is the one prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures. They have had enough proof. They have beheld enough revelation. They have seen it with their eyes. They have heard it with their very ears. They have had enough information to conclude that this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. What we see is already in Matthew 11 that the nation of Israel has rejected him. Sure, he's being followed by multitudes, but these multitudes are fickle. They're basically in it for free entertainment, free food. There wasn't much going on in those days. It was kind of boring, so Jesus was the best entertainment value in town, so they followed him around. But they didn't really believe in him. At this point in Matthew's gospel, the Pharisees, the religious leaders already hate him. They're already filled with rage and anger against him and murderous rage. In chapter 12, they'll actually call him. uh, They'll say that he does his miracles by the power of Beelzebul, Satan. They'll actually attribute his powers to the devil. And there is a few band of true followers, true believers And even amongst these true believers, there's doubt. How many times did Jesus call his disciples, O ye of little faith? And even his herald, John the Baptist, comes to him and questions him. Are you really the coming one? Are you the Messiah? At this point in Christ's life and ministry, he's experiencing rejection on a widespread scale. There's rejection by the religious leaders. There's even rejection by his family. His brothers didn't believe in him. Rejection by his hometown, Nazareth, they didn't believe in him. Rejection by the multitudes, which will eventually end up in them nailing him to a cross and putting him to death and mocking him as he dies. And even those true believers, those true followers of Jesus Christ are doubting and have a very little faith. Now, Matthew 11, verse 16 to 24, deals with how does Jesus relate toward unbelieving rejection? How does Jesus respond to the rejection of this world? And we're going to see Jesus Christ do two things in this passage. First of all, we're going to see him tell a parable. And second of all, we're going to see him make a pronouncement. We'll see the parable in verses 16 to 19, and we'll see the pronouncement in verses 20 to 24. First of all, let's see as Jesus tells a parable, verse 16. But shall what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We have played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, He has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated. By her deeds. Now, verses 16 to 19, Jesus tells a parable. A parable is simply a story, a simple story that illustrates spiritual truth. Jesus Christ was the master of telling parables. He had the ability to take this incredible, infinite wisdom that he possessed and to distill it into these simple little stories of people with bread or people throwing seed or fathers and sons. Little, simple little stories that all of us can relate to and understand. And yet these stories have the capacity to contain his infinite wisdom. He was the master teacher in this way. Any teacher can know enough to confuse anybody else. But Jesus knew how to distill his massive wisdom into these simple little stories that a child could understand. And here Jesus is going to tell a parable. If I were to give a title to this parable, I would entitle it, The Parable of the Spoiled Stubborn Children. The parable of the spoiled, stubborn children. What you need to picture in your minds as you look at this parable is the most spoiled, rotten, stubborn child that you have ever had the experience to babysit or have in a classroom. Just the most difficult child that you've ever had experience with. Okay, don't picture nice children. Don't don't picture, you know, Cute children, picture stubborn children, children that, you know, you just an hour with them is long enough. Okay, that's what this picture is going to be. Spoiled, stubborn children is the picture in, in this 
parable. Now, Jesus says, verse 16, what shall I compare this generation? Mark that phrase, this generation, very carefully. It refers to the specific generation in Israel's history that personally witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This generation was privileged beyond all generations. This generation had the privilege of beholding Messiah with their very own eyes. To see the miracles of Jesus Christ. To hear His words. To stand there as He taught the masses and the multitudes. Even to have their own bodies healed or their family members, bodies of their family members healed by His divine power. This generation was the generation privileged beyond all generations of Israel's history. What would He have given to be a part of this generation? To know this privilege. To actually see Jesus Christ. To actually hear His words. To actually walk with Him. To eat with Him. To talk with Him. What tremendous privilege they had been given this generation. Yet the sad truth is they rejected Him. They had all that privilege. And they concluded that He was of the devil. That He was of Beelzebul. So Jesus says, what shall I compare them to? What is this generation like? They are, verse 16, like children in the marketplaces. Now that's a familiar picture in Jesus' day. It's a familiar picture in our day. The marketplace would have simply been the gathering place where everyone would come and sell their, sell their goods. And when the marketplace was empty, the children would come and they would play. Very familiar sight. The equivalent of our day would be a park. We get together at the park and children go and they play on the playground. And we all know what that means. You could even picture maybe outside and at break time at our fellowship where we have a number of children at our church and they gather together and they play. And children, you understand, when they get together, they don't sit and they don't, they don't talk about things. They don't sit and have conversations. They play. They play games. And if they don't have a game to play, they make up games to play. Children are very interesting, almost... Every day I ask my children, what did you do today? And they always say the same response. We played. And every day I'll say, tell me something else. Okay? <laughs> I mean, what did you do? What did you, did you, what did you learn? Um, what, did you, um, you know, what did you learn about in school? And, and they'll say, well, you know, we learned it, but we played. <laughs> what did you play? I don't know. We played. <laughs> children play. And here we have a familiar picture, children playing. And they're playing in the marketplace, in the familiar place where we would have known, that these people would have known. Verse 16, they are like children in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now it appears here that there are two games being played by the children in the marketplace. There is a happy game and there is a sad game. The happy game is indicated by that phrase, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. What these children are doing is they're getting together and they're saying, let's play a happy game. You pretend that you're going to play the flute and then we'll pretend that we're going to dance and we're going to have a great time. Let's play and we'll jump and dance. Maybe you can uh, picture a ring around the rosy or just kids playing duck, duck, goose. They want to play a happy game. We're going to play a flute. We're going to dance. We're going to laugh. We're going to jump. We're going to shout. It's going to be a great time. Let's play. We play the flute for you. Some commentators believe that what the children are playing here is the game of wedding. They're play-acting wedding. You know, children like to imitate adults, and wedding would have been a very public spectacle in that day. And they're saying, okay, you know, Sally, you be the bride, and Henry, you be the groom, and, you know, we'll play the flute, and we'll be like celebrant, and we'll have a dance afterwards, and, you know, we'll pretend to cut the cake or whatever they did in those days. They want to play a game, a happy game, whether it's wedding or some kind of festival or this is a happy game. Now, there's also a sad game being played in the marketplace. That's indicated by the phrase, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So they say, let's play a happy game and let's play a sad game. The sad game is we're going to sing a sad song now. We're going to pretend everyone's sad. Let's all pretend that we're sad. Woohoo. Let's pretend something really bad has happened. 
and everyone's going to be sad. Let's be, it's kind of a strange game for children to play, but they'd play this game. Uh, some commentators believe that this is a game of funeral going on here, that they're singing a dirge. They're saying, okay, you know, Joe, you be the dead guy. We'll carry you around, and then we'll, we'll all pretend that we're mourning. And, you know, they would have been used to seeing this in Jewish society, and they're putting, we'll pretend we're putting ashes on each other, and we'll wail and go, wah, wah. It's kind of fun, I guess. Let's play a sad game. There's a happy game, and there's a sad game. What you notice in this story, this little parable, is that there's a group of children in this parable that no matter what game is offered to them, they don't want to play the game. We play the flute for you. You didn't dance. So we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What's happening in this marketplace is that these children, and they're saying to these other children, Let's play a happy game. Okay, let's play wedding or let's play festival. Let's play duck, duck, goose. Let's play ring around the rosy. Let's have a good time. You know, we'll play the flute. You dance. We'll be happy. We'll clap. We'll jump. We'll shout for joy. It'll be so much fun. And the other children are saying, no, we don't like that game. We don't like happy games. I don't want to play that game. I don't like duck, duck, goose. If you run around too much. I don't like ring around the rosy. I don't like it when we dance. Don't like it. They don't want to play the game. So these children are coming back and they're saying, okay, you don't like the happy game, let's play a sad game. I mean, if you don't like happy games, you've got to like sad games, right? I mean, if you don't like to play Star Wars, then you've you got to like to play Barbie, okay? You've got to like something, <laughs> right? If you don't want to play wedding, let's play funeral. Let's play something. Let's not just sit around and just not play anything. Let's play something, okay? You don't want to play the happy game. Let's play a sad game. Let's sing a dirge. Let's play funeral. Let's play dead guy, okay? Let's, let's play a sad game. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. These children come to the other children and say, let's play a sad game. And the children say, no, we don't like that game either. We don't like happy games, and we don't like sad games. We don't like your games. What's the picture here? These stubborn little children. These spoiled little children. You cannot win with these children. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to spend time with a child like this or babysit a child like this, but it's like, you know, maybe you babysat a child like this and you're like, okay, you know, you want to eat something? No, we don't, I don't want to eat anything. Okay, do you want to watch a video? No, I don't like videos. Want to play a game? No, I don't like games. You want some candy? Yeah, yeah, you know, candy. <laughs> have candy. Okay. And they're like, you know, candy. <laughs> You're like, you know, you want to tear out your hair. What are you going to do with these kids? They don't want to do anything. That's the picture that Jesus is port- port- portraying for us. What shall I compare this generation? What are they like? What are their hearts like? What are they like spiritually? They're like these stubborn, spoiled, impossible to deal with children. They don't want to play any game that we offer them, no matter what game we play. They don't want to play. Say, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Verse 18. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. You know what John the Baptist was? He was basically the sad game. He was the sad ministry. He came to this generation. He preached judgment. He preached wrath. He preached repentance. He said you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. He said you need to be humbled. He called people snakes. He called people vipers. He said the fire is coming to burn you up. He was a sad ministry. He had one note, and it was minor key. You're going to hell, and you need to repent. That was his message. Over and over again, he just called people. You're like these slithering little snakes trying to scramble away from the fire that's coming to burn you up. And when Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you in fire. That is, he's going to take this fiery wrath and he's just going to throw you in it. That was John's message. Not a very happy message. He was basically like a sad, the sad game. John was, man, he was just... Relentless. 
you know, we give <laughs> these ministries names. You know, we like to call ministries names, and we have these names like Joyland Ministries or Hallelujah Ministries. And John's ministry would have been gloom and doom ministry. Slithery snake ministry. The guy was, it was a sad ministry. You're going to hell. You need to repent. You're a sinner. And if you don't repent now, you're going to be burned up. That was his message. And he walked around eating bugs. I mean, just the style was so, it was so minor key, so sad. John came, and you rejected him. You said he has a demon. So we offered you a sad game, John. You didn't want it. So we offered you a happy game. Who's the happy game? Jesus. John was the sad ministry. In contrast, Jesus was the happy ministry. John just preached judgment and wrath. And sin and destruction. And Jesus came and the first words in the Sermon on the Mount was blessed. Happiness, joy, light, peace. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus went to weddings. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus mingled with people. Jesus didn't just go around eating bugs. He, he ate real food, normal food. Jesus even compared himself to a bridegroom. He said, you can't be sad when the bridegroom's with you. When the bridegroom leaves, then be sad. Jesus showed compassion and mercy and grace. Jesus touched lepers. Jesus healed people. Jesus spoke with gentleness and grace and kindness. And in contrast to John, he was a happy ministry. And what did they conclude about him? Verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. You didn't want a sad game, so we offered you a happy game. You don't want either, is the point. There were two gospel preachers in the world at that generation. One style was sad and one style was happy. And this generation was offered the sad game and they said, We don't want to play. And so this generation was offered the happy game and they said, we don't want to play that either. We just don't want to play. We don't want the truth, whether it's in sad packaging. We don't want the truth if it's in happy packaging. Jesus says, they're nothing but a bunch of spoiled, rotten, stubborn children. Do you understand that Jesus talked like this? Do you understand that Jesus spoke words like this about people. There's a severity here. Jesus is kind. He is merciful. He is gentle. He is also severe. He is filled with holy indignation and wrath towards stubborn, hard-hearted people who will not receive the truth of who He is. There are a bunch of spoiled children. Some lessons and applications. Number one, Jesus holds people accountable for how they respond to the gospel. Jesus holds people accountable for how they respond to the gospel. Whatever truth has been given, whatever light has been given to an unbeliever, they are accountable for that truth and to respond to that truth. Jesus doesn't walk around and say, oh, well, you know, you heard the news about who I am, but hey, you know, take your time. It's no big deal. You've got time, and I'm a cool guy. You know, haven't you heard about me? I'm gentle and kind. I don't get my feathers ruffled that easily. It's okay. You know, peace. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is like, you heard the truth of who I am? You are accountable to respond to that truth. You are now accountable. Number two, we learn that unbelievers reject the gospel because of hardened hearts not stylistic preferences. Unbelievers reject the gospel because of hard hearts, not stylistic preferences. Unbelievers love to do this. They love to justify the rejection of the gospel by criticizing the style of the messenger. They love to come to church and say, well, I didn't like the music. Well, I didn't like the way the, you know, the preacher was too funny or he wasn't funny enough. Or I didn't like the way that people dressed or I didn't like the building. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. 
They love to justify their unbelief by criticizing the style of the preacher. What Jesus is saying here is that this generation was offered every conceivable style on the spectrum. They were offered a style that was so sad that it was, it was um, incredibly, like it was just judgment and wrath. And then they were offered a style that was happiness and joy and light. And they didn't want either. Ephesians 4.18 says that unbelievers reject the gospel because of the hardness of their hearts. It is not the style of the preacher or the church. It is the hardness of the heart. Number three, I think we can learn that God blesses a variety of styles to reach a variety of people. God blesses a variety of styles to reach a variety of people. Different messengers of God have different styles and God blesses them all. And whether it is conservative, whether it is funny, whether it is emphasis on sadness, whether it is the emphasis on happiness, God blesses those styles to reach different people. The issue is not style, the issue is truth. And then fourthly, I think we can learn that the gospel will always produce fruit no matter how many people choose to reject it. Verse 19, Jesus says this, Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What do you mean by that, Jesus? What he means is that true salvation wisdom, the wisdom that leads to salvation, will always be shown to be right in what it produces. And what it produces is transformed lives and true believers and saved souls. The gospel is always going to work no matter how many people reject him. No matter how, uh, in, if, even if an entire generation rejects Jesus Christ, the gospel will produce its fruit and it will be shown to be right. And these people will be shown to be fools. Now verses 16 to 19, we see, saw Jesus Tell a parable. Let's move to verses 20 to 24. We see Jesus make a pronouncement. Jesus makes a pronouncement. And here the gloves really come off. Here we see the full-fledged holy fury and wrath of the righteous lion who judges wicked sinners. Verse 20. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done, he began to condemn them. He began to denounce them. Have you ever heard a lion roar? I was at the zoo once. I saw a lion. I thought, well, this lion doesn't look like that, but he looks kind of sickly to be honest with you. I wasn't too afraid of him until I heard him roar. And even that sickly looking lion, once he opened his mouth, there was a roar that was, I mean, even as an adult, I was like a little bit afraid. I mean, there was a cage and everything, but I was like, to hear the lion roar was a fearsome thing. And what we see in verse 20 is essentially the lion. Jesus is the lion, and here we hear him roar with holy and righteous indignation toward a generation who has rejected him. He began to reproach the cities. He began to condemn them. He was denouncing their wickedness and their hardened hearts and their stubbornness to, to believe in him as the Messiah. And he specifies, verse 20, the cities in which most of his miracles were done. These were the cities that had beheld his healing power, his signs and wonders. They had seen it with their very own eyes. And why did he condemn them? Because, verse 20, they did not repent. They did not turn from their sin and they did not embrace him as the Messiah. So here he goes, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred to you, in you they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Chorazin and Bethsaida were two of the little villages in which his miracles were performed. They were basically villages that were close to Capernaum, which was his home base of operations in his ministry. And he had settled in Capernaum and he had done miracles in these little villages like Chorazin and Bethsaida. And they had seen him and they had rejected him. 
And Jesus says here something that was mind-boggling and shocking to a Jewish reader. He says, if the miracles that have been performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon would have repented. Now, in Tyre and Sidon, he picks the two, in the Jewish mind, this, these would have been the two most wicked Gentile cities in Old Testament prophecy. Tyre and Sidon were basically denounced. They were Gentile cities. They were steeped in pagan idolatry and they were denounced in Isaiah and Ezekiel for being wicked and for being proud against the Lord. And the Lord had cursed them and had pronounced woes upon them. And to a Jewish reader at this point in time, Tyre and Sidon would have been among the worst of cities. Jesus points to these two villages, these two, note this, religious, moral Upstanding villages. He says, you know what? You're more wicked than these pagan Gentile nations. You're more hard of heart. You're more stubborn. You're more blind. Because if Tyre and Sidon had seen my miracles, they would have repented. And you didn't. You know what this is the equivalent of in our day? In our day, we have uh, cities that we consider to be very immoral, very gross, very perverse. We have cities that we understand that they're just like the pits of iniquity. We even have a city that's called the city of sin. This is like Jesus pointing out some upstanding, religious, moral, conservative, red state town. Pro-family, pro-church pro-religion, against abortion, against gay marriage. They, they like moral values. They're into their religion. They're into living uprightly and living clean. This is like him pointing out one of these cities in the heartland of America where everybody goes to church and everybody lives a clean and sober life and saying, you, you have worse hearts than those living in the red light district. You have more hardened hearts than all the immoral, perverse, all the violent gang members who are killing each other. Your hearts are worse than they are. And the truth is that if if they had received the revelation that you have, they would have repented. And you haven't. This is shocking to a Jew. This is shocking to us. We would expect Jesus to go to Kors and Bethsaida and to commend them. You go to church. You like religion. You know, you vote conservative. You're pro-family. You don't like alcohol. You don't like drugs. You don't have gangs. Commend you. Jesus is the opposite. He goes in there and he says, you're worse than they are. Your hearts are worse than they are. And the truth is, their hearts are worse off than they were because they were filled with the sin that may be the greatest of all, which is self-righteousness. They were so proud and they were so self-righteous, they had no need of a Savior. You know, people who are wicked, people who are, who are lost in sin, at least sometimes they have a sense that I'm in sin and I need a Savior. Sometimes they have this sense of, I'm so messed up, I'm on drugs, I'm on alcohol, I can't, I'm addicted, I can't get off, I need someone to help me. And those people Jesus came to and he ate with them and he showed grace to them. These people were so hardened of heart, they had no need of a savior, they felt no need of grace, and so they were afflicted with possibly the greatest sin of all, self-righteousness and pride. Verse 22. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Very shocking statement here. What Jesus indicates here is that there will be degrees of punishment on judgment day and there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Is hell infinitely horrible? Yes. Is hell infinitely um, eternal in duration? Yes. Yet is there degrees of punishment in hell? Is there degrees of punishment on judgment day? Yes. This verse would indicate yes. 
There is punishment that is more tolerable and there is punishment that is less tolerable. And would you mark down here, the person who gets the severest punishment in this verse is the person who has received the greatest revelation and the greatest privilege. It's not the person who has sinned the most perverse sin. It's not the person who has fell into the most immorality or the most addiction or the most violence. It is the person who has received the greatest revelation and the greatest privilege and has rejected it. Those are the people who Jesus says will receive the most severe punishment in hell. People, what we need to get in our minds is that the people who will have this most severe punishment on judgment day are not the people who are steeped in sin and in perversion and in idolatry. They are the people who have sat in our churches, who have heard our preaching, who have read our Bibles, who have been in our small groups, who have witnessed the revelation of Jesus Christ in the fullest sense and who have turned their backs on Him and have rejected Him. Those people, Jesus says, receive the greatest punishment, receive the severest hell because they have been given the greatest privilege and they have rejected Him. Verse 23, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Capernaum being the city that he settled in, did most, most of his miracles. They had this saying like, like we have, like Los Angeles, we're the city of angels. We're going to just fly with the angels. And, you know, cities have these slogans. And they must have had this slogan indicated here in verse 23, that we're just going to be exalted to heaven. We're good people. We're moral people. We're religious people. You, Capernaum, you won't be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Now, if Tyre and Sidon didn't get them, then Sodom would. Tyre and Sidon, their, their minds would have been the most wicked Gentile cities, but Sodom would have been at the bottom of the list. Sodom was the only city in the Old Testament where men, homosexual men tried to rape angels. Sodom was so evil and perverse and so wicked that God destroyed it with fire and brimstone. Compare Sodom, the most wicked city, the most grossest immorality, the most sickest of perversion, with this fine, upstanding, moral, religious town called Capernaum where everything was lovely and beautiful. And they said, we're going to be exalted to heaven. And Jesus says, Capernaum, you're worse. You're worse than Sodom. And if I had performed these miracles in Sodom, they would have repented, and you didn't. Again, verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable, more tolerable, degrees of punishment again. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The religious cities in Jesus' day compare unfavorably with the perverse wickedness of Gentile pagan cities. With a reputation for immorality and wickedness. What do we learn for this? Number one, we learn that religious people are not good people. Religious people are not good people. We have a myth today. We believe that, you know, if you're a red state person, if you're pro-family, if you're against abortion, if you're clean living, if you don't do drugs, if you only watch up to PG-13 movies, if you're not in a gang, if you have conservative values, if you work hard, if you go to church Sunday morning, then you're better off than people who are immoral and who are perverse. You're better off than the child molesters. You're better off than the serial killers. You're better off than the gang members. You're better off than the drug addicts. And Jesus here says, no, reverse it. Religious people are oftentimes actually more worse off because they are more hard of heart they are more proud in their hearts. They think they don't need a Savior and that they can make it on their own. And that possibly is the greatest sin of all. The sin of pride. 
Let me ask you a question. Who were the people who nailed Jesus to a cross? Were they irreligious or religious? Religious people. Who were the people in the Gospels who were filled with the most rage, the most hatred, the most murderous intention against Jesus Christ? Were they religious or irreligious? They were religious. Who were the people that Jesus reserved his strongest words of denunciation and condemnation? Were they for the irreligious people or were they for the, for the religious people? They were for religious people. We learn from this passage that religious people are not good people. It is not okay to be clean living and to be morally upright and to be sober and to have conservative values if you don't recognize your need, your desperate need for a Savior to save you from your sin. And in fact, many times those people are worse off because they don't see their need for a Savior. Number two, I believe we learn from this passage. Let me say this very carefully. I believe we learn from this passage that the fear of hell is a legitimate motivation for people coming to Jesus Christ. Fear of hell is a legitimate motivation for people coming to Jesus Christ. If you will not come to Jesus Christ because you see his loveliness and his beauty and his glory and his majesty, if you will not come to Jesus Christ because you are captured by his love and his mercy and what he did for you on the cross, then come to Jesus Christ because if you don't, he will be angry with you and throw you into hell. Fear of hell is a legitimate motivation I've heard it said in pulpits that you shouldn't come to Jesus because you want to be saved from hell. I don't understand what they're talking about. You should come to Jesus because you want to be saved from hell. You should come to Jesus because if you don't, you will go to hell. You should come to Jesus because if you will not be captured by his beauty as a tender shepherd, then be terrified by him as a sovereign judge. Fear of hell is legitimate motivation. I can share with you quite honestly. When I came to become a Christian, I had such a hard heart against the Lord. I was so hardened against the gospel, but I understood one thing. And that was I was a sinner and that if I died, I was going straight to hell. And people, that for a heart that was as hard as mine, that was like the only truth that could break my hardened heart. It's fear of hell. Psalm 2.12 says this. Kiss the son. Do homage to the son. Reverence him. Bow before the son. Why? Lest he become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. If you won't come to Jesus because you love his loveliness, then come to Jesus because if you don't, he will be angry with you, his wrath will be upon you, and his judgment will be upon you. Either way, come. The Bible invites you to come. Fear of hell is legitimate motivation for coming to Christ. And the truth is, we do not understand the gospel until we have had the fear of hell struck deep in our hearts. It will be more tolerable for those who have not received the revelation that Christ has given on the day of judgment than for those who have received this revelation and rejected him. How does Jesus respond to unbelieving rejection? First, he tells a parable which illustrates the stubbornness of this generation's heart, the stubbornness of unbelievers who reject him. Second, he makes a pronouncement of condemnation and woe and cursing and the promise of judgment for those who reject him. Now let me draw it all together. Listen carefully. I'm going to draw together everything that Matthew 11 talks about here. Jesus Christ came into this world he was the Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the one that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He came and he fulfilled scripture. 
He came and performed miracles. He came and authenticated his deity. He came and authenticated his messiahship. He showed his glory to the world. He was a light shining into the darkness. And at this point in his life and his ministry, he is surrounded by, get this picture, he's surrounded by unbelieving rejection on a widespread scale. And he has a few, a band of few followers. And even those few followers are doubting him. They have little faith. They're even doubting the very fact, is he the Messiah? Unbelieving rejection, believing doubt, this is what Jesus is surrounded by. This is what Jesus is experiencing. Now, if I was in Jesus' shoes, here's what I would have been tempted to do. I would have been tempted to say, Father, it ain't going according to plan. This plan's not working. They're not accepting me. I've fulfilled everything that the Scripture said. I fulfilled I performed miracles. They should have believed. It's not working. Can we shortcut the plan? Can you take me back up to heaven? Or can we just destroy all these people now and start over? I would have been tempted to be frustrated. I would have been tempted to be downcast. I would have been tempted to be angry. Here's how Jesus responds to this unbelieving rejection to this believing doubt. Verse 28. He says, Come. He says, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my load is light. Here's Jesus Christ surrounded by people who hate him, people who want to murder him, people who don't believe in him, people who mock him. Fickle multitudes are only interested in free food. Believers who doubt him. And he turns to this generation, this generation of stubborn, spoiled children who are under judgment. And he opens up his arms and he says, come. He says, you can still come. He says, it's not too late. You can still receive mercy. You can still receive grace. You can still be forgiven. You can still have your sins washed away. You've been stubborn, disobedient, difficult to deal with children. You've rejected immense amounts of Revelation from God and you're under God's condemnation. But you know what? You can still come. You can still be forgiven. In fact, I'm telling you, come. All of you, come. The beauty of Christ's attributes in this passage is just astounding. Just the balance starts off with Jesus as a tender, merciful, loving shepherd, moves to Jesus as a fierce, wrathful, angry lion, and then moves right back to Jesus as that beautiful Savior who opens up his arms to a stubborn and disobedient world and says, you can still come. When I read this passage, I'm reminded of the book of Revelation where there's so much wrath and revelation, there's so much judgment, there's so many scary, fearsome things, 
so much wrath, so much anger, so much of God's holy vengeance against a sinful and disobedient world. And then the book of Revelation ends at the end of the Bible with this statement, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. If you want to come, come. You don't have to be judged. You don't have to be condemned. You don't have to face this fiery judgment. You can still come. Come. And he says, come all who are weary and heavy laden. Primarily in this context, that heavy burden, that heavy laden that he's talking about is this burden of sin and of condemnation and of judgment that just rests upon the sinner. All his guilt, all his wickedness, all his perversion, all of his judgment, the hell, the sentence of hell that rests on his shoulders, it is this heavy load and burden. And religious people come and they say, you can get rid of this burden by doing good things, by going to church, by tithing your income. And they try to do those things and just more burden upon them. And they're just weary and they're heavy laden and they're scared of judgment. And Jesus says, if you're scared and if you're weary and you're tired and you're burdened, come. Come. Come to me. I will give you rest. I'll take that burden. What is salvation? Salvation is you come to Jesus and you've got this huge, gigantic burden on your shoulders that says, I'm a sinner. I have so much sin in my heart. I have so much sin in my life. I know that even if I just sin one of these sins, I deserve hell, but I don't just have one. I have millions of sins. I have sins internal. I have sins external. What am I going to do? I'm under condemnation and wrath and judgment. I'm going straight to hell and religion is just piling on stuff on my shoulders. I'm weary. I'm heavy. I'm burden laden. And you take this giant mass, this giant burden, and you just throw it at Jesus' feet. Hear Jesus. Here's all my sin. Here's all my sorrow. Here's all my condemnation. Here's all my wrath. It's all yours. And I picture it. You're sitting there looking at it and you're like, ashamed. I mean, like, Jesus, I know your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. I know that you're holy. I know that you hate sin. I'm ashamed even to bring all this garbage before you. All of this wickedness. But here it is. You said to come, so I'm coming. Here's my burden. You said to bring it. I'm bringing it. Here it is. It, it's so disgusting. I don't even want to look at it. And if I don't want to look at it, you don't want to look at it. But here it is. Jesus says, I'll take that. You don't have to carry it anymore. I'll take it. And in his place, I'll give you my rest. Theologians have called this the great exchange. What is the gospel? The gospel is the great exchange. I give Jesus my sin. He gives me his forgiveness. I give Jesus my curse. He gives me his blessing. I give Jesus my death. He gives me his life. I give Jesus my hell. He gives me his heaven. I give Jesus my condemnation. He gives me his acceptance. I give Jesus my unrighteousness. He gives me his perfect righteousness. In this passage, the exchange is this. I give Jesus my burden. He gives me his rest. It's the great exchange. It's grace. You say, well, I didn't do anything to deserve that. That's the point. It's grace. You say, well, can't I do anything to earn this? No, you can't. Can't I do anything to contribute to this? No, you can't. The only thing, mark it down, the only thing that you can contribute to the great exchange of the gospel of grace is your sin. The only thing that you can give to Jesus is your sin. The only thing that you can place at Jesus' feet is your sin. That's the only 
contribution that you have made or ever will make to the gospel of grace. In the end, what have I given for this salvation? I have given my sin. And Jesus has given me his forgiveness. The great theologian R.C. Sproul summed up the great exchange in these profound words. He said, What a deal! What a deal! I give Jesus my burden and he gives me his rest. What a deal. I mean, who in their right mind would say no to an offer like this? Who in their right mind would look at an offer like this and say, I don't want any part of it. I'd rather take my burden, thank you. I'd rather have my sin, thank you. I'd rather have my condemnation, thank you. I'd rather carry this weighty burden and have religion added to my life. Thank you very much. I don't want it. I'll carry it myself. Who in their right mind would do that? Only an absolute fool. And what Jesus is saying here is you have to be an absolute fool to say no to this offer. Come. Come to me. Where I want to end here is by saying this. You need to come. You need to come. Your brother can't come for you. Your sister can't come for you. Your friend can't come for you. Your mother, father, small group leader can't come for you. You, you need to come. And what I want to say is this. What Jesus says is, come to me. Come to me. Don't come to the church as good as that is. Don't come to a ministry as good as that is. Don't come to your friend as wonderful as friends are. Come to me. You need to come. And you need to come to Jesus. You may have been a believer for a long time, but you have burdens and you're weary, and you're heavy laden, you need to come to Jesus. You may be a brand new believer. You're still struggling to understand the doctrines of grace, still struggling to understand God's forgiveness. You need to come to Jesus. You may be sitting here this morning and you haven't accepted the gospel of grace. You've been like that stubborn child. You've been listening to preaching, listening to messages. You've been reading the Bible, but you haven't turned and repented of your sin. You need to come. And Jesus says, come. Come to me. I will give you rest. And you will find that my yoke is easy. You will find that my burden is light. Would you bow in prayer with me together? I want to give you just a moment this morning to respond to Christ's invitation in your heart. Dear Christian believer, have you been weary and heavy laden? Jesus has come. Dear new believer, are you weary and heavy laden, still struggling to understand your sin? Jesus says to come. Unbeliever who hasn't received the gospel, Jesus says come. He opens his arms out to you. He says come. Bring your burden. Bring that big, heavy burden that you've been carrying and just lay it before Christ's feet. He'll take it from you and give you his rest. This message ends with just you and Jesus. Come to me, Jesus says. Would you take a moment and just respond to him in your heart? Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. We thank you for his life, 
his compassion, his mercy, his grace. We thank you for his wrath, his anger, his righteousness, his judgment. And we thank you that at the end of it all, Jesus still comes and invites us to come. To come and experience his rest. To come and experience his forgiveness. To take that heavy load that we've been carrying all of our lives and to cast it down at his feet. Father, I pray that there would not be a single one this morning in this congregation who would not come and who would not experience that rest. What fools we would be to say no to this offer. We all come. And we thank you for the grace that you've given to us in the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.